Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Into the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. We'll start there. It says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave dinner to him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with this fragrance of perfume. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, this is the one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, as John points out. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus says, you leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. I want to talk this morning on the subject of complaint, giving up complaint. You're like, oh, no. Pride I was okay with. I felt like I was pretty good on pride. Uh, but complaint, come on now. You know the funny thing about complaint, you probably complained 10 times before you even stepped out of your house today. Walking down the hallway, temperature wasn't where you liked it, so you said something about the thermostat. You said something to who's, you know, who's ever listening about the weather today or the weather yesterday, right? Uh, your, maybe your shirt wasn't ironed today. You know, maybe if, not only did you probably complain 10 times at home, but then you got in the car and you complained on the commute in here. Like, for crying out loud, then you get to church, someone's in your parking spot, right, where you park. Someone's going the wrong direction. Don't they know they shouldn't be going that direction? So then you worked your way in here. You had conversation with your family. Probably complained about something. But then when you got on these holy grounds, this church, right, you probably dropped your complaint down to, to five. So when you walked through the doors, I don't know. Maybe someone was sitting in your seat this morning. Maybe you're good up until I got up on the stage and you said, how can that guy wear holes in his jeans? Said that to your wife. Or maybe it was when Pastor Ken was praying and there was a child crying and you thought, man, why can that parent take that child out of here quicker? How can they have crying kids in the house of God? There, you know what I'm saying? It's just funny how complaints... It, uh, it works its way into the fabric of all of our conversation. Do you know how much I complained this week? Very little. Do you know why? Because I knew that I was going to be on this stage talking about complaint. <laughs> so for me, it was just a good check all week long. You can ask my wife. I would start conversation. It would start to veer that way, and then I would just I would stop it. It would be done. Just moving on. And I would have that check thinking, no can't do this. And I, I realized this. This is the wonderful practice. The more you're aware of it, the more you're intentional about the words that you're confessing, the conversation that you're participating with, uh, the easier it is to catch yourself. But the problem is we don't catch ourselves enough. We're Idahoans. For many of us that have lived here a long time, we understand that we have four strong seasons. And it's even funny, even when it comes to the weather, we have something to say about the weather all the time. 
For example, it's summertime. It's hot. We're loving it, right? And then, you, then you're like, man, I can't wait because we get to August. I can't wait for this heat to subside. I can't wait for some fall weather in Idaho. A little country music on, smelling the wheat fields, driving out in the country. Man, I can't wait for that to happen. Then fall gets here, and you're like, you know what? I can't wait to hang stockings. I'm tired of the fall time. I want some snow. We never have snow in Idaho anymore. We used to have snow. We don't have snow anymore. I don't know what's wrong with this system. We're going to pray for snow. So we pray for snow, and then we get snow, and it doesn't stay for a week or two weeks or a month. It stays for three months, and three months in, we're like, where is all this snow coming from? Why do we have so much snow? Shoveling this, you know, your roofs off. I was up on the roof protecting my house from collapse against ice dams. You know, water's leaking in. You're like, what in the world's happened to us? With all this snow, it's everywhere. I'm tired of shoveling snow. You're like, I can't wait for springtime. The, the, uh, the flowers blooming, you know, the greenery, the shoots coming through. And that's what happens. Everyone starts sneezing and coughing. Like, man, what is up with the springtime? Allergies break out. We, we haven't rained for a couple days. You're like, we're not Seattle or Portland. What's wrong with our city? And then we get back into summertime. Ah, oh, summer's here. But then once you know, we hit the three digits in August, and we're back to this vicious cycle of complaining about this blessed weather we have. For some reason, we think now is something to complain about. Isn't it funny how if we're not careful, every part of our life can be seeded with complaint. And so I think if there's anything good to give up, and guess what? We've been giving up some really good things. And the thing I found about with all these areas of give up that we've been participating in, from pride to impatience to enmity, right, to uh, comparisons, um, to complaint, all of these, guess what they have in common? They have a same underlining spirit. And the scary thing is typically you don't have one without having some expressions of the other. And so when you entertain one, guess what happens? You open the door to entertain all these others. Because with pride, guess what's not too far away? Comparison. With comparison, guess what's not too far away? Being discontent. Being discontent, guess what's not too far away? Complaining. Because when you're discontent, you just don't sit there and talk about how amazing life is. No, you do the opposite. You talk about how awful life is and how you wish things could change. And so for a few moments this morning, I want to talk about uh, how we can give up complaints and be better for it. Amen? I uh, read an article. Uh, this author's co-author's name is Travis Bradbury. He's co-authored Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And he stated some pretty interesting things when it comes to complaints, uh, how it affects even the human body, how it affects our brain. He says com- uh, complaining rewires your brain for negativity. So let's just start there. So the more you complain, the more negative you become. Now, I want to I, I want to just qualify this by saying there's obviously some things that you know we complain over that wouldn't necessarily put you in that category of someone who is uh, perpetually complaining or habitual in your complaint. For example, uh, I was out at a restaurant the other day with a good friend of mine, and there was an eyelash in his food. Oh yeah, right. Oh right. Well, guess what? He ate around the eyelash and didn't even tell the the wait staff. But if there was a Band-Aid in his food, I would encourage him to tell the wait staff that there was a Band-Aid in his food. What's the point? The point is we can choose what to complain about and what not to complain. What to make a big deal and what not to make a big deal. Now, for some of you, the eyelash thing, that might be a big deal. But come on, compared to a used Band-Aid in your soup, that's a bigger deal. 
And that should probably be brought up to the attention of the wait staff. But done with the right heart, right? But there's just not that. There's, the, the point is we choose, and that's the amazing thing about who we are. We get to choose what we focus on. And I know this. Whatever you focus on, what happens? It expands. It grows. Uh, it becomes bigger. Um, and when we look at this report and then tied into what Paul has to say in Colossians and going back to this, this story of what we looked at already, um, briefly with the story of Jesus at supper, dinner time, uh, you're going to see that there's some pretty amazing remedies to complaints, meaning God offers us something different. We don't have to choose to live in that spirit or in that state of negativity or always wanting something to be better or different. Complaining rewires your brain for negativity. Research shows that most people complain once a minute during a typical conversation. Complaining is tempting because it feels good. But like many other things that are enjoyable, complaining isn't good for you. And the reason why it feels good is because a lot of people who complain habitually do so because they feel powerless or they feel like there is no remedy or they feel like it's always going to be this way. And so there's like this pseudo comfort. It's like this being a 45-year-old and you still have your old blanket from when you were a child. Uh, Everyone else knows that it's disgusting and it needs just to be put away and done away with. But we keep it like it's a place of comfort for us. For some, complaint actually becomes this um, facade of comfort because it's the only way they can express maybe some of their inward frustrations. The problem, though, it doesn't take you to a better place. It often grows worse. When you repeat a behavior such as complaining, your neurons branch out to each other to ease the flow of information. This makes it much easier to repeat the behavior in the future. So easy, in fact, that you might not even realize that you're doing it. The neurons grow closer together. The connections between them become more permanent. Scientists like to describe this process as neurons that fire together, wire together. Repeated complaining rewires your brain to make future complaining more likely. And over time, you find it easier to be negative than to be positive, regardless what's happening around you. Complaining becomes your default behavior, which changes how people perceive you. Not only that, but there's research done in Stanford University that shows that complaining shrinks an area of your brain that's critical to problem-solving and intelligent thought. So, yes, habitual complaining can cause brain damage. It reduces the ability for you to think critically and think intelligently. Damage to this area is also scary, especially when you consider that it's the one primary area of the brain destroyed by Alzheimer's. And when you complain, your body releases the stress hormone called cortisol. Cortisol shifts you into the fight-or-flight mode, directing oxygen and blood, and energy away from everything but the systems that are essential to immediate survival. On the effect of cortisol, for example, it raises your blood pressure, your blood sugar, so you'll be able to be prepared to either escape or defend yourself. The next point and last point that he makes here is all the extra cortisol released by frequent complaining impairs your immune system and makes you more susceptible to high cholesterol, heart disease, obesity, and et cetera. It even makes the brain more vulnerable to strokes. What's the point of it all? Well, the point of all is that complaining is never a good solution. And a matter of fact, it leads you away from a place of health. It leads you away from a place um, of, of, of growth in function. It actually limits your function. It limits your ability. I sat down with my daughter. She's almost 10. And I read this article to her. And she was all ears and all eyes leaning forward. That's just the body position saying that I have her attention. And after I'm done, she's like, oh, man, I I don't want to complain. I don't want to be dumb, Dad. I don't want to be dumb. I go, exactly. Complaining actually makes you dumber. 
So the more we do the opposite of cleaning, we actually get smarter because we protect those areas of our brain, come on, that are needed. So what does it have to do then with the scripture? Well, the point is this, that when we complain, it just doesn't affect us uh, and just affect us just in some little form and function, but it has an effect on our body physically. It It has an effect on our life spiritually. Because what you confess, and the more you confess that's what, what it is that you believe, it begins to really shape how you live, right? Uh, but this doesn't have an effect there. Complaining, just like other bad habits, can affect people around you. So it's just not you that you are uh, jeopardizing, but you are jeopardizing. And when I choose to step into that area and mode of complaint, I jeopardize the people around me. I take them from a good position, I bring them to a lesser position based on my what? My, my complaints. Uh, when you look at Paul, and I love this. I've been reading this in the, uh, his, his first prison or his, his prison epistle. This is his first Roman imprisonment. Paul writes a letter, and you see it's themed in this letter to Colossians, to the, uh, the churches in uh, Colossae, is you see that he's writing a theme, and this theme has throughout the pages of this letter, it's just ripe with what? Thanksgiving. He's reminding the people of God to be thankful always in everything they do. Have thanksgiving. Be, give thanks to the Lord. Be thankful. Be grateful unto God. And he's writing this from prison. We have this wonderful ability to get a Bible, any translation we want, and open it up. And we're, we easily read it. Have you ever thought what it took for Paul to pin this letter? The lighting was probably horrible. How he got the material, I have no idea but he was able to get it. Then how did he get it out of this Roman prison? And how did he then get it to travel back to these churches where it could be read aloud in public to all the believers there in Colossae? It had to be quite the effort and quite the feat. And what he was writing, he was not writing, it's horrible here. Serving Jesus is awful, but I'm going to continue on and hopefully it gets better. Uh, No, what is he writing? He's not even writing about his condition. He's concerned about the condition of the church and where he's left them in this city. And what's his major concern? His major concern is because Colossae was such a popular city, a predominant city, a trade route ran through there. So you had this mixture of merchants and travelers and philosophies and world religions all coming together in this hub of culture. And the fear was this, or the danger was that there would be a mixture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning that if they're not careful, if they're listening to the wrong people and they try and add to what's already been preached about Jesus, then guess what happens? The fear is they could walk away with a misdefinition, uh, a wrong definition of who Jesus Christ is. So the entire letter in Colossians is all about this one major doctrine called the doctrine of what? Christology, the doctrine of Jesus. I mean, what does the Bible have to say about Jesus' life, his, his birth, his character, his function, his power, uh, what he has done, what he's going to do, what he's already completed? This is all under this doctrine of Christology. And what we see is Paul saying it's so important that you hear this again. Let this be read aloud to every believer in this place because if you get this doctrine wrong, everything else in life is wrong with it. If you don't have a clear understanding who Jesus is, guess what happens? There's no way you can be victorious in this life, especially if you believe Hebrews chapter 12, where he says he is, pointing to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of what? Our faith. Not someone else's faith, not just a few people's faith, but 
all of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. And if we get the beginning and the end wrong, it's amazing what else falls, what else we fall uh, prey to after that. So he's making this very strong point, even in the opening chapters here, of who Jesus Christ is, reminding them, think about it, from his jail cell, who he is. In chapters 1, you can read this through chapters 1 into chapters, chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, these are some of the points that he makes. He says that he's the son of God. He's the king. He's the redeemer. He's the image of God. He's the firstborn of God. He's the creator of all. He's the eternal, right? He's the sustainer of all. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning. Just for a moment, think about Paul writing, giving a clear understanding uh, and writing out plainly to this audience who Jesus Christ is while he's in prison. He also says he's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the preeminent one. He is the peacemaker, the reconciler, the sanctifier. He is wisdom and knowledge. He's the head over principalities. What, what, what's he saying throughout this entire letter is that when it comes down to it, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the head of the entire body. He's the head of his church. He's the head of his body. Everything, all form, function, purpose, mission, strategy, uh, your marching orders all come from what? Christ is the head of your life. Meaning this, and then he ties into talking about family and the order of family and life. And what you see Paul is saying, he's, he's saying this, that there's nothing in our life, in our humanity, that Jesus doesn't touch. And what happens when you understand that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, guess what it has this, guess what it has, guess what it has this power to do? It has this power to change everything about you and I. From our actions to our motive to our mindset, come on, to our confession. When we get a hold of who Jesus Christ is, you know what else changes? Our language changes. Meaning we take on this heavenly language that follows and supports who Jesus Christ is. Look at Colossians chapter 2. We'll read this. It says, verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught. Look at this. Abounding in thanksgiving. When we were water baptizing over here moments ago, if you notice, the water was spilling over the outside of the tank. That is a picture of what Paul's talking about. Your life should abound just like that in thanksgiving, meaning that your confession of praise and worship and honor and love and charity, that should not be something that's scarce in the life of a believer, but it should be abundant in the life of every believer. He goes on to write in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, through 17, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, look at this, forgiving each other. Just as our Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Look at that. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything that we are and how our activity and how our action of life uh, works and forms is the... the how it forms is following Jesus. Look at what uh, N.T. Wright mentioned this. 
when he's talking about even the book of Colossians. He says, you must have Thanksgiving overflowing in your lives. Then you'll know that you're on the right track. In addition, your lives will be attractive and delightful to people outside. They'll look in puzzlement at people living a whole new sort of life. That, too, is part of the point of it all. Isn't that how the gospel is likely to spread? Is through what? Of people looking in and seeing from the out, outside in. They're looking in at those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And what they're looking at is they're looking at people of celebration and excitement. Come on, and gratitude and thanksgiving. Not the opposite. Come on, if we've been purchased by the very life of Jesus, then our only, our only response to that is thanksgiving. I think if anyone in the world is to be thankful, come on, should not that be the hallmark of the church? Shouldn't the Christian life be the most thankful life that's ever been witnessed and seen and heard and watched and evidenced in, in the entire world? Absolutely. So when we get to go over to the park and put on an incredible event for 30-plus thousand people in our community, what are they going to hopefully be seeing and hearing and witnessing? They're going to be looking at people with puzzlement, and puzzlement on their faces, with N.T. Wright saying, why is it that you're so excited? What's happened to your story? What's happening in your life that makes you confess the goodness of God wherever you go? Why are you so overwhelmed with energy? They might not even know the words to form to describe you and I, but this should be the way of our living based on what Christ has done for us. And this takes me then to the story that we start with in the Gospel of John. What you have is you have this incredible setting. It's a setting of dinner. I love how Jesus always involves food in a lot of his, his mission and ministry and what he does. And here again in chapter 12 of, uh, of, of uh, John here, we see him at a table having dinner with some of his close friends, disciples, and Martha and Mary and Lazarus, who was just raised from the very dead. You read in John chapter 11, the story of Jesus coming to Bethany. He's calling Lazarus' name out of the tomb. He'd been in the tomb. He'd been dead uh, for three days. He comes out of the tomb, right, completely restored in his right mind and in full health. And you see a witness of believers or witnesses of people witness this. He then goes into hiding because how many know this, that anytime uh, you show love towards people, anytime Jesus showed love and compassion towards people, uh, sometimes he uh, had the opposite take place to him. People became to get jealous, and they thought he was a threat because he was this power that they've never, they, they don't know what to do with. They can't handle Jesus. And you see throughout the, the text, throughout the Scripture, the New Testament, there are these people that they didn't attack Jesus because he was guilty. They attacked him because he was innocent in his love and his devotion towards others, and it was a threat to them. Well, in chapter 11, you see that it says many Jews and Mary they witnessed what took place, and you note there it says she believed or they believed. When scholars look at Mary, they consider Mary, many scholars consider Mary to be the what? The apostle to the apostles, meaning that she had this, this eye uh, window. She had this um, front row view of who Jesus was, and for her, it caught right away. She understood that he wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a good rabbi, just not a good guy, just a good pastor, Good, good, uh, good, good leader, you know, decent communicator, all that stuff. She didn't think that, she didn't peg him into any of those categories. No, 
she knew that he was something greater than all those. That those were just uh, just substitutes compared to who he really was. And who was he? He was the Christ. He was the Son of the Living God. She saw personally, firsthand, the the resurrection power of Jesus working in her own family member. And the audience now, or the setting, is this: that she's in this room. Martha said, John says that Martha's serving. Lazarus is with the others, reclining at the table. There's other, Simon who is there as well. We see that Mary is not serving with Martha, but where, where's Mary? Mary's at the feet of Jesus, and she's done something truly remarkable. A blessing and an honor for her, but then it was pegged by others to be uh, a waste. And we see two stories. We see the apostle of the apostles, or she could even be considered the apostle of thanksgiving. Mary is in this room. And if she's the apostle of thanksgiving, who would her counterpart be? None other than Judas Iscariot, who would be the apostle of complaints. And you see, as you read in this story, in these eight to nine verses, a sharp contrast between the two. We see Mary is on the floor at the feet of Jesus. Says she has her hair down. She's wiping his feet in this costly ointment that she poured out upon him. And an ointment and an oil that she had been saving for his burial. I don't know about you, but I have kids. And I, I know with kids, one of the hardest things for kids to do is to keep a secret. Especially if they're excited. Are you, are you with me? Like Christmas time's coming, right? And you brought your kids into the secret. We're getting mom something incredible. You tell them about what you got her in July. There's no way they're going to keep that silent till December. What do they do? They spill, it, they spill it out. Or what I love is like Mother's Day, Father's Day, especially Father's Day because I'm the one that's getting the gifts, right? But I don't like just, I don't, you don't need to buy me a tie. I love when my kids make me something. But the, the funny thing about kids is typically they, don't want, they just won't give it to you. There's little restraint because they're so excited about it as well. They typically don't give it to you. They don't give it to me on Father's Day. I usually get it the night before or somehow the, the surprise of it all leaked out earlier that week. Why? Because there's so much excitement in their little person that they just can't hold it back. I, I imagine this was a lot like Mary's dilemma. There's so much excitement. She had this, as Judas Iscariot put this price tag on it, a present, a gift for Jesus, for his burial, actually, that was well worth 300 denarii. She can't keep it concealed any longer. She can't keep it hidden, and what does she do? She, regardless of what people think, regardless of what they say, regardless of what the environment's like, she, a woman, breaks into this pretty much all-predominant male dinner time, this supper experience, and she gets down at the feet of Jesus. She breaks open this alabaster box, and she begins to pour this costly fragrance, this, this perfume, this oil, uh, this nard on the feet of Jesus, but she just doesn't stay there. She then undoes her hair, lets her hair drop, which is considered pretty provocative, especially in the mixed culture of male and female. Uh, that wasn't to be done. But what she's saying is like, I don't care about anyone else in this room. All I care is about the person that's in front of me right now. When you look at the life of Mary, what you see is that she always found herself at the feet of Jesus. Or even in a male-predominant culture, she was always on the fringe, looking, watching, listening for Jesus. She was a student of what? Christology, of what 
Paul talked about. She was a study of the life of Jesus, of the person of Jesus. She knew who he was. She knew the value of his name. She knew the power of his words. She knew the touch of his hands on a crowd, how it could heal people. She knew that he didn't even have to raise his voice. He just would command and things would happen. Miracles that were needed took place. People that are in the dire straits of life at the very spoken words of Jesus, Mary experienced that this was he who is born of God, born of a virgin. He's the incarnate one. He's come. He's taken on the robes of humanity. He's dwelling with us. My God, he's in our presence, my household right now. The only thing that I can do is take what is very costly to me, but compared to who he is, it has no value. I prove it by breaking at the feet of Jesus, and I even use my hair to wipe his, wipe, wipe, use his hair to wipe his, his feet. If that's Mary, and she represents honesty and openness and worship and thanksgiving, then what about the apostle of complaint? I don't imagine that he was close to Jesus because anytime you're doing something shady, anytime you're sneaking around, uh, you don't want to really get close to the person who is like your standard or should be your standard. So what do you do? You want to be in the same room because you want to keep an eye on things because if you don't have a know what's taking place, then it's it's a lot more difficult to very, to be deceptive. So you stay close enough, but I imagine he's at like the corner part of the, the furthest point of the table looking and listening. What Mary is doing is actually disgusting to him because he doesn't have the same picture of Jesus. He has a picture of himself. Actually, the the last five weeks that we've been in this Give Up series, all those things we've been giving up are personified in the person of the apostle of complaint, which is Judas Iscariot. And not all roads lead to Rome. Some end in, in dead ends. His life led in dead end. Where Mary went as the apostle of, come on, think about Thanksgiving, was not where uh, Judas went with the, as the apostle of complaint. He even breaks out and breaks up this moment, this sweet moment. Think about it. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. The, the moment he needed close support was in this room right here. He got it by some. Others didn't know what to say. The, 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 the apostle of complaint over here shouts out, basically, what are you doing? Don't you know the worth of that? I love how John says the reason why he said that is because in his heart he was a thief. But guess who only knew he was a thief? Jesus was the only person in that room that knew he was a thief because he, Judas was a deceiver. So if you want to write notes down, just write this. Don't be a Judas. His, his other peers didn't even know that what he was doing. He was, this, he was this hypocrite in his philanthropy. They thought he had the responsibility to house and hold on to the treasure bag or the treasure box. But what he's doing is when funds would come in, he would take a little for himself. So this whole scenario had nothing to do with Jesus for him and it had everything to do with what he's going to get out of it. Or in this scenario, what he's lost because it's now in, in, in oil on the feet of Jesus. So what was a blessing considered an honor and a privilege for Mary was considered a waste and ridiculous to Judas. See, what happens is Thanksgiving moves you to this place to where offering is easy. Complaint, habitual complaint, moves you to this area where you begin to think, man, all this praise, all this celebration, all this gratitude, what a waste. For what? And the difference is this. And I thought, what's the counterpart? What's the antidote to a complaining spirit? It's just not necessarily more Thanksgiving, especially if you don't know where the source of your Thanksgiving come from. I've realized this. I've been studying this week that the antidote to a complaining spirit is clear vision. So if you have a habitual complaint problem, you actually have a vision problem. 
Why? Because what Paul said to the Colossians, what's he doing in this letter to them? He's adjusting their vision. Don't allow Jesus to be identified or redefined by other things in your culture, by other philosophies. What's he doing? He's, he's making sure that Jesus and who he is and what he's done and his character and his power and his likeness is right before them. And if they get the understanding of who Jesus is and they get everything right, it follows suit. The same thing is here. He lays the, Mary lays where? At the feet of Jesus. She gets close. Basically, when Jesus says, leave her alone, she's going to keep this, let her keep this from my barrel. What he's saying is, this should be all your response. If you knew what she knew and you were on her level as far as her understanding who I am, all you people would be on your faces at my feet right now. What does Mary do? Mary actually starts Palm Sunday because what she did at the feet of Jesus is when Jesus went into Jerusalem on a young cult, right? What are people beginning to do? They can't help it. They realize he is the Messiah. They begin to put palm branches right down at the, 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 the feet of the cult. And so as he rides in, what is he riding on? He's riding in on their thanksgiving and on their praise. What's, what's he doing right now? He's, he's receiving the praise and thanksgiving from Mary. See, this is, this is my concern, is that if we're not careful, we adopt a language that's not heavenly. It's, it's quite opposite. Uh, a heavenly language is a language of thanksgiving and a language of praise. It's a spirit of gratitude. And as the church, man, that is, that is what God's called us to do. I love how John says, I'm almost done here, but I love how John says that when the, the, the oil went on the feet of Jesus, it said the fragrance filled, the aroma filled the entire room, which is, which is amazing to the point that when we are thankful, you know what happens? It fills the entire room that we're in. The aroma changes. My son, he got a hole, I don't know, for, I don't know, because he's, about going through puberty, so the kid needs deodorant and body spray. So you got a can of Axe. And uh, I walked down the hallway the day, and I just about passed out. There was so much Axe in our hallway. Uh, I'm like, son, what are you doing? Did you empty that whole can in one setting? He's like, no, Dad, I promise. I just, I just, just squirted it once, just, just once. And I go, that one, that one shot of Axe filled our entire house. Let's try and limit that a little bit. Maybe a little lighter on, on the finger when it comes to pushing that button because you don't need a whole lot. What I love about thinking about this costly ointment and this nard is that it was just a little that went a long way. Meaning that to, to today, tomorrow, when you just start your day with just a little bit of Thanksgiving, it's amazing how that concentrated form will, will fill your entire day as you set your day up saying, you know what, I can choose a day to be grateful. I can choose to be thankful. I can choose uh, to, to look for who Jesus is in my day. Or I can choose the opposite, and I can choose to complain. My challenge for us is this, that if we get our Christology right, guess what you get? You get your doxology right. If you get meaning your worship, when you get Christology right, when you get a clear, everyday understanding, deep, biblical, unmoving understanding of who Jesus Christ is, as he is our Savior, King, those that are in need of a healing day, he's your healer. Those that are down with just some major sin problems and bad habits, guess what? He's the God who can sanctify your life. Those that are in need of the comfort of Jesus, guess what? He is the God of comfort. When you get, man, a clear picture of who Jesus Christ is, it's amazing how everything else follows suit in a good way. You get Jesus wrong, you get everything wrong. So the right Christology forms the right worship, doxology. The right Christology forms the right terminology, your confession. 
And this week, this is the challenge for all of us. Start every day confessing what the Bible has to say about your life and about others. The only way you can get to know Jesus is by opening up the good book called the Bible and spending an incredible amount of time throughout the course of your day reading it, declaring it, listening to it, uh, see and listen how it actually involves you in the story. And what happens is your confession changes. Whatever you focus on, come on, it, it expands, it grows. And so are we going to be a people of complaint or are we going to be a people of, of worship and thanksgiving? You know, if I did a, if I did a little uh, just, I don't know, practical uh, test right now, and I said, okay, for the next 30 seconds, um, I want everyone to think about 40 things uh, that you're ungrateful for and, and that have affected you, and I want you to complain. We're going to have a complain session for 30 seconds. So you're like, Already, you know, people are shaking their head at me. No, how dare I'm not going to do it. Relax. Uh, the point is, you, you already felt what that was going to feel like to you, right? So if complaining in an audience of 700, 800 people, you realize, no, that's going to actually bring us lower, then it does the same thing if it's just an audience of two people or if it's just by yourself and you're allowing the complaints uh, to just run around wrapping your head. But we are going to do an exercise. I'm going to show you something. And I encourage you that you do this exercise Every single day. As the worship team comes up, we're about ready to take communion and go into just sweet worship song. But before we do that, I'd ask you all to stand up with me. Since I've been preaching and standing for 30 minutes and you've been sitting for 30 minutes, I think this is only fair. Come on, all you. It's, it, you can trust me on this. This is going to be easy. Now, as I was driving in uh, to work this last week, uh, one of my days, uh, as I was praying in the morning, I just began just to say, um, just tell God how much I love him. And I felt like the Holy Spirit says, all right, get specific with me. So as I'm driving, I look at my hands. I'm like, God, thank you for my hands that are wrapped around this steering wheel. And I have the ability to turn this steering wheel with my hands. And I don't know. I had probably some good worship music on to really help, you know, in the moments. But even if I didn't, I would have still continued. And I said, thank you that these hands also have changed uh, dirty diapers and for my two kids. And thank you that these same hands that have changed dirty diapers uh, have been the same hands that have held my kids as they've grown up. And when they were happy, when they were sad, when they weren't feeling well, you've given me these hands to, to bring comfort and care to my kids. And, man, these are the same hands that on a, any good Sunday uh, I can put them, I can choose to either keep them deep in my pocket or put them high in the air and just worship you. And the reason why uh, I want to worship you is because you've been so good to me. And I'm like, God, thank you as I'm driving in for my eyes that I'm able to see the road. Praise God. I'm able to drive. But not just see the road. Thank you that you've given me the ability to see in different hues and different color tones. And th thank you, God, that not only do you give me eyes to see, but both with my eyes and my hands. You, God, you know how I like to doodle. I like to, I like to draw. I like to illustrate. Thank you you've given me the ability to be able to draw pictures. Thank you for the, you've given me the ability to write notes. Thank you that as I even take these hands and these eyes and open my Bible, uh, I can begin just to read what you have to say and see and hear what you have to say to me. It's amazing. In an eight-minute commute, it changes my entire day. The challenge is this, that we're to be a people, especially when we get ready for Good Friday and into Easter, into this next year, what God has for us. Man, could you imagine if 
we partner like Mary did with the apostle of thanksgiving and just go ahead and reject and deny the apostle of complaint and say, you know what? Yeah, I want to be like Mary with the alabaster box broken before the feet of Jesus, not like Judas who has the treasury box clenched tightly and holding on to these 30 pieces of silver for all his worth. No, I want to have the offering made easy because, man, Jesus has been so good. He's so amazing. I want us to do this. If you have a spouse, go ahead and grab that spouse's hand. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.